protest, we will be noisy. A protest is about sound and vision. That's Steve Bray. If you've walked past Parliament in London, you may have seen or even heard him before. I was walking through central London the other day with a friend. It was pouring with rain and I heard his voice. My friend told me this guy's been stood outside Parliament every day since 2019. It's just one man trying to make a change in the world and if you agree with him or not, you have to recognise the persistence. But it got me thinking. It seems that every day there are news stories about different groups and communities protesting for change. If you think about it, you have the doctors, nurses, train drivers, teachers, people that deliver the post to the big ones, like stopping oil and climate change. People are out there doing what they believe will affect change. But where does change actually happen? Who are they trying to convince? Us, the public, the media? Or is it like Steve Bray, who's literally standing outside in the rain, trying to talk directly to those in power? Welcome to LSEIQ, the podcast where we ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. I'm Mike Wilkerson from the IQ team, where we work with academics to bring you their latest research and ideas, and talk to people affected by the issues we explore. We're going to hear about how change isn't as straightforward as we'd probably like it to be, and how it can be all in the timing. Now, sometimes you just need to wait for the right moment to make change happen. But first I spoke to Duncan Green, He's a professor in practice in LSE's Department for International Development and a senior strategic advisor to Oxfam. He's written a book called How Change Happens, which feels like he's the perfect person to ask, can we change the world? So I think it is often a a collective thing. And so the first thing an individual should do is look around and see which community you are, you want to be part of, you're naturally part of. There's a really good way of thinking about this in terms of power. I teach my students that one of the keys to being an effective activist is to make power in this whatever situation you're in visible um, and think about power quite intentionally. And then um, uh, um, one of the ways is to think about power is to say, well, you have power within, you know, your sense of agency, your, your confidence, but then you have power with which is the one where you you get together with people in similar situations to yourself. So that's social movements, trade unions, uh, industrial associations, whatever. That's when you can start to really shift things. So as an individual, you can do things through consumption, through individual decision making. But I think that it really gets interesting when people come together. And change seems to be more difficult now than ever. Um, what mechanisms, if any, are there now in this day and age that can help us affect change that maybe we couldn't do in the past? Well, the first thing to say is change is uh, happening all around us. So, so I think it's worth distinguishing between change as a kind of external thing and intentional change that we're trying to create. So, you know, I don't know how many thousand years ago Heraclitus has said the only constant in life is change. And if anything, that change has accelerated technologically, globalization, migration. So there's this enormous churn of change going on all around us. So the job of activists is to understand that uh, and then see where you can add a little bit, push it in a more progressive direction, make positive change. And I think that, uh, yeah, we've had a bad few years. I'm just updating my book, How Change Happens, and it was published the month before Brexit. And every chapter seems to end with, yeah, I was really optimistic in 2016. Things aren't so good now. 
but still, you know, and the, the but still is the important bit that you've got amazing things going on around the world in terms of social movements, in terms of protest movements, in terms of progressive political parties with new agendas, in terms of work on climate change, on migration, on sexuality. So there's loads of good stuff happening, but a lot of the headlines are quite dark. A couple of things on that. One is, you know, social movements in many countries are in a, in a stage of resistance, stopping bad things happening rather than making, so they're on the back foot. That still requires courage, stamina, and, and being smart about it. And then the pendulum will swing and, and they, they'll be able to go on the front foot and start advocating for more progressive things. So I think there's various changes that have happened over the last few years, but they certainly don't mean we just, just go home and watch telly. I wanted to ask you about um, what change is available to who. There's different, seems to be different levels of change depending on your, your background, your education. Do you think that's true? Yeah, well, the, one of the words we all use these days in academia is positionality. So you, know, you need to have a good understanding of your position in the system. So, you know, I'm an old, white, straight man. I'm on the wrong side of history on so many levels. And that actually changes what you do. So I had a really interesting conversation with the uh, president of the African Studies Association of Africa. And at the end of it, I said, I'm puffled, you know, what do I do? Look at me. I mean, you know, and she said, well, people in your position, you step to the side or you step to the back, but you don't step off. So I think that's one example where your position means that you use what platforms you've got to get other voices into the room. I want to talk to you about where change happens. You know, activism and social movements, it's a, it's a collective of people coming together, gathering ideas and starting change. But ultimately, a lot of the time that change, you know, the reason we, we, we have social movements is to make change within governmental systems. Where does change happen? So there's this really interesting dance between insiders and outsiders, yeah? So a lot of the ideas that are now regarded as completely, you know, normal in government started with social movements. But the process by which ideas start with social movements and come into government is quite a complex one. So typically a social movement will advocate for something, um, there'll be some conflict, then some sort of progressive forces or some people within government who've got connections to that social movement will say, oh, that looks interesting, we'll have that. So, for example, when I was working for the Catholic aid agency, CAFOD, we had a great barrister who was working on something called Publish What You Pay, which said that oil companies should publish the revenues they pay to governments so that people could see whether that money was being stolen or not. Um, along comes Tony Blair, says, oh, that's interesting, I'll have that gave it a terrible name, the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative. They should have stuck with Publish What You Pay. And it's gone massive. It's gone around the world. So that's an example where a good idea is kind of incubated. Now, if you're an activist, that's really annoying because suddenly you see people taking credit. You know, they never credit you for your ideas, so you just got to suck that up. Uh, sometimes it's diluted. But that leads to a kind of shift. There's, a, there's an idea, then it's opposed, but then there's an interesting synthesis which moves the needle a bit. Uh, and that's happened on... You know, minimum wage, gay rights, all sorts of things start in social movements. The interesting bit is when they come into government. Now, final point, the relationship between insiders and outsiders is tricky, right? So if insiders are smart, they really like outsiders. Outsiders bang on their door, open space for you as an insider to get reforms through and that kind of thing. Outsiders are a bit suspicious of insiders. They wear suits. They're a bit close to people in power. Are they being co-opted? Are they playing you? So there's always a kind of quite unstable relationship between insiders and outsiders. And I think one of the themes of the book and the course I teach at LSE is that you've got to be aware of the, that dynamic and learn how to work within it. 
I spoke to Jens Madsen, an assistant professor in the Department of Psychological and Behavioural Science at LSE, and his work looks at complex systems, what they are and how they make change really hard in most governments around the world. Around the time we spoke, there was a lot of talk about the ULES expansion in London, the ultra-low emission zone, which would bring a charge to vehicles that don't comply with emissions-based regulations. There's a bit of a divide with the people in London on whether it's a good thing, so we talked about that. If you think of, like, the ULES that we have in London now and in many other towns, right, like, where does that policy come from, right? Like, it doesn't come out of a vacuum, uh, like where Sadiq Khan woke up one day and just went like, let's let's do it, right? It's a really complex, like swirling of stuff that comes from campaigners who want to reduce uh, carbon emissions in the capital. So that's some degree of bottom-up stuff, right? It comes from local residents who also want cars out of their like neighborhoods. It comes from activists who are like stop the oil and stuff like this, like who want to like advocate for less consumption of diesel fuel but then there's a a push against that right from people who want to buy uh, like drive their cars so if you think of like the difficulty of Sadiq Khan's position in making that decision right it is colored by all these different things that are around him right like a what he believes personally to be good for London b what he believes to be potentially also popular as well like if he wants to be re-elected C, what he believes to be scientifically accurate or, like, good advice. D, what he personally believes as a product of his own news consumption. Like, E, my, my A, B, C, D, uh, whatever, uh, E. Uh, like, what constituents are also genuinely wanting to see effective as change in the local communities, right? So, like, this bottom-up, top-down process of information, beliefs, opportunities and stuff are kind of like vacillating constantly, right? And nothing is kind of like just a linear process within those systems. So if there is some top-down measure that is being applied to a system that the system itself thinks is too draconian or too much or whatever, they will change their behaviors, not just quantitatively, like how much they do something, but qualitatively, like what they do in that system. For some problems, like you can definitely go in top-down, right? Um, and for other problems, it will be almost impossible to go in, go in top down. And you'll have to go in and figure out, like, what is it that people actually are trying to do with this system, right? Like, again, like, you could close some roads in London um, for cars or whatever, but people need to get to work or they need to go to, like, um, a pub or a place of entertainment or a park or whatever, right? So if they have to go from A to B they're going to try and find a way, right? Or they're just not going to go and they're going to stay at home. So that whole system will depend on what is it that people are trying to do in that system, right? And like, so if you're trying to sort of say like, well, what will reduce congestion in London, right? Well, what is the intervention that's best? Is it increased public transportation? Is it investing in bicycle paths and encouraging people to bike with tax benefits or whatever it may be, right? Is it to uh, make a ULES zone that like means that more environmentally friendly cars will be more likely to be purchased? Is it to increase road construction? Is it like there are a lot of different levers that you can pull, right? Is it a combination of it, right? And in that environment, it's really, really important that we understand not only what the intervention sort of shape looks like, but also what people are trying bottom up to do within that thing. 
So change isn't as simple as just making the decision. It's not just a yes or no, it's much more complex than that. To change a system with so many moving parts, things have to be thought through, and this will always take time. With Duncan having worked in the charity sector, I wanted to know if he found change to be so difficult to achieve. So I don't know if Jens talked about Donella Meadows, but she is like the greatest guru on systems. Um, uh, she wrote uh, a book called Thinking in Systems, uh, which was a revelation to me and to lots of other people. Uh, she was a mathematician, but also an environmentalist. And um, at one point she said, if you want to bring about change, you have to learn to dance with the system, right? Um, and what that means is you have to become aware of the system that you're operating in and then move with its rhythms and changes. And that's like, so if you see a new idea coming up, can you piggyback on that? Is that relevant to you? If you see a new leader emerging or a new group emerging, if there's a shock, a scandal, a crisis, what windows are opening? So you've got to be constantly curious about the system that you operate in. Um, and one, I guess the thing that I've noticed most in Oxfam and in NGOs is that they like planning too much. They, they, they spend months negotiating their strategy and they have it all written down and that's the plan for the next three years. And actually, if you're going to be effective, you have to be willing to just drop that because something has happened. You know, so we had uh, yeah, an office in Malawi, did some work on um, domestic violence, uh, and it didn't get anywhere in Parliament. They wanted a new law on domestic violence. But then there was a, a horrendous case in Malawi, and it got onto the front pages of the newspapers. And they re-upped that legislation three years later. Everybody jumped in on it because there was this critical moment, critical juncture, and they got it passed. Now... As an activist, or as a researcher, actually, this applies just as much to researchers, you tend to be always on your next thing, your next paper, your next campaign. And so to have the bandwidth to spot those opportunities and say, oh, we did something on that a couple of years ago, let's get that out and have another go, is a big shift in mindset. So I think that's where the systems piece really comes in. You're listening to LSE IQ. If you like this podcast, you might also like the LSE Events podcast which features talks by some of the most influential figures in the social sciences. Listen to a recent talk, for example, by the first woman and the first African to lead the World Trade Organization, Ngozi Okonjo-Owela. For more inspiring content, such LSE lectures and events, wherever you get your podcast. Now back to IQ. I liked it when Duncan quoted Donella Meadows dancing with the system. It felt like a poetic way to describe waiting for the right moment to make change happen. But how can people find the time to wait for that moment when they have jobs and families to think about? I spoke to Faisal Shaheen, a visiting professor in practice at LSE's International Inequalities Institute. She's an author and a Labour Party candidate. So I asked her what everyday people can do to find time to make change. Time is such a luxury. Uh, when you're really struggling with money and you're working two jobs, like, I mean, how do you make time to to get involved in these things. But I think also it's important to note that historically and in some ways, in some areas now, there are ways in which working class people make the most change in the sense of organizing, striking in the workplace or pushing back against the bosses in whatever form that can take. And you see that now, you know, more recently in this country in the last couple of years as, as people, you know, cleaners in hospitals have managed to um, stop outsourcing and be brought back in-house and be given better rights. The biggest thing is that it takes courage and really does take this effort to bring people together. I think sometimes people look at, you know, people talk about change makers or, you know, inspirational people, these individuals, 
But the reality is change doesn't happen because of one person. The reality is, that, you know, the kind of grassroots change, the kind of good type of change that we want to see come from people comes from collective effort. You know, a lot of what I've already spoken about today is like how you join a community of people that feel the same as you. And that is power. That That is what gives you power. And we might want to point to individuals in history that have made a difference. But when you look into their stories, they are held up by a movement. They got there because other people came around and organized. And yes, we don't remember their names, but that is the reality of how how change happens. You know, people were saying to me about winning my selection for the Labour Party and and I have to constantly correct them that it actually was a real group effort. Like I didn't make all the calls on my own. I didn't come up with a strategy on my own that was a complete group effort by local members. Whilst it feels like, yes, there's some privileged people in positions that they have loads of time. And I think some of that is true. I think whatever you can do in the time that you have to be part of a community can be the kind of change and collective change that we need to see. Pfizer is running to become an MP. She might become, as Duncan said, an insider. So from her perspective, I wanted to know where she thinks change happens. There's different types of change. Sometimes it's just a change, you know, in just getting people to be more aware, like getting the public to notice an issue is often the first step because too often the people in government aren't interested until you've made a big noise about things. What I would say is that if ultimately you know, you want to see the policy change or the legal change, the legislative change. You just do need to have a sense of where you want to get to. Like, what is what is it that you want to see at the end of this? Because I worry sometimes as someone that's worked on inequality for sort of 20 years now. And when I started working on economic inequality, people didn't really care about it over the last 20 years. That's completely shifted, right? Inequality gets so much more attention now and people understand that it's an issue. But actually... For the most part, in terms of policies, we've seen it go in the opposite direction. I have kind of been reflecting quite a lot about why change hasn't happened in that scenario. There's lots of public awareness, there's lots of public anger, but maybe, you know, either the policies have never been clear about what we're demanding or it's been, you know, co-opted or able to be, unfortunately, um, you know, the Nigel Farage's of the world, you know, able to kind of blame these issues on immigration instead of what's going on at the top of society. You know, you asked me that question about where does change happen? And I think we all kind of struggle with that, even as someone that's been thinking about this and trying to do it for a long time. You've got to know what you're trying to do and where you're, where you're trying to get to and understand that things will happen that will try and undermine your arguments and, and you know, constantly thinking strategically is... It's hard to do, but you know, it's kind of disappointing. Like I, quite honestly, I look at that. I look at the fact that we have more anger about inequality. We have more academic papers about it. We have more books about it, but inequality has grown and the policies are worse. We'll have to be honest there about what's gone wrong and the ability, you know, there's very important people at the top of society with lots of money that are able to block change. And this, again, is why, you know, the importance of the collective, because it's, it's very hard to go up against that without a big movement of people. Even with the amount of work into an issue like inequality, Pfizer feels like there hasn't been enough improvement in policy. But legislative or legal change seems to be the goal for change to happen. But why does it feel like it takes so much time in government? Yeah, there is a big problem with the fact that people are often elected for four or five years and they'll have their own agenda. They want to be remembered for something. And that often doesn't match up with what needs to be done in the world. Basically, public pressure is is the key thing. I mean, 
of course, on certain issues, you are able to move the consensus. Um, so it's hard to believe here, but say in Canada, you know, the political consensus is pro-migration, essentially. You know, they don't have this anti-immigration stance. They've got a very strong narrative about the kind of country they are. But they say, we're not a melting pot. We're, we're actually a kind of patchwork quilt. People come with what they have. You're welcome to be what, whoever you are and you can be Canadian. And so that sort of thing is so in the public psyche that politicians can't really go against that um, to the same degree as they do, say, here. And, you know, that takes a lot of effort and time for outside movements um, to um, get the public on side. So for instance, in Ireland, the efforts that were made to get abortion through gay marriage, you know, those things were done through public conversations, through activism, because sometimes also, even if politicians agree, they don't want to be seen to be the face of it because they'll, they're scared they'll get a backlash. Um, and that takes a lot of effort from movements over time to to push that and move that. Again, like thinking about then the connection back to legislation. So you need those movements, you need those conversations, you need that commitment over years. And then you need to be like, push at the right time with the right people to get that legislation in. Because of course, there are some governments that are completely opposed, but if there's a change in government and you've got your opportunity, then you need to have you know your, your policy ideas ready, your legislation ready so that, that you can get the, the people in government that are on side to push at that moment. So it's not impossible to work within this system, but it does take a lot of effort from civil society, essentially. Because change rarely comes from the top. I mean, sometimes it can feel like it has. But again, when you look behind the story, it's been you know, pushed from the outside for a long time. Do you think public attitude to, to protests and, and campaigning has changed? Well, what we've seen, I mean, here, but across the world, when we was doing some work over the last year, looking at shifts and different points of crisis and how people were reacting. And we looked at some data that was showing us how much protests has increased since 2006. So between 2006 and 2020, protests around the world has tripled. And, and when you think about that, you, know, you can imagine like Black Lives Matter, you can imagine what happened after the financial crisis and the Occupy movement. Yes, people are more willing to take to the street because of anger, because of frustration. And sometimes it's because, you know, they don't want to wear masks. You know, this isn't all necessarily like progressive change. It's a sense of that universal sense of frustration and one thing the last few years as I've been working abroad and looking at these trends much more is how much is not just a UK or a US issue or a Western issue you know this is the case wherever you look and often these protests when you look in detail are about frustrations with failure of democracy or government you know in some countries like Colombia there was a huge push because of unfair tax systems where really the middle class um, as well as the working class were going to be taxed more in this sense of like, why are we getting taxed more? Um, and it became something else as well. But yeah, there's, there's just, it's interesting that whilst, yeah, people are having to work so hard and, and it's a struggle, there's a lot of anger out there and frustration. So it is resulting in, in more protest, which in general is, you know, of course, a good thing. For me, you know, you want that protest to then convert into real change because what you find, say, I've done some work, over the last few years with some of the Arab region countries that had you know, revolutions. And it, it's the saddest thing is people that talk about their experience and their pride and their hope in Tunisia, for instance, at the time of revolution and going out and being part of protest and then feeling like the country is in a worse state now. Again, it's like you can, you can take to the streets, but if it isn't people there ready to kind of 
do something that the left is often uncomfortable with, which is take on power um, and utilize power, then these things can kind of collapse or not go the way that you want them to. So you end up people, you know, being even more despondent because they've built up all this hope. I think, you know, just looking at the numbers of protests, you would think people are more willing to take to the street. But the degree to which that is bringing about enough change, I think, is questionable. Protesting in the street doesn't always have the outcome that social movements will want them to. And if change does happen through protest, if the right things aren't in place, that change isn't always for the best. I asked Duncan Green, looking forward, do we need to change how we make change? So in the aid business, there's a couple of things I think we are not doing, which we should do. One I've already mentioned, that whole question of how do we change the structures to push power principally, followed by money, down to the organisations who really deal with it. You know, when an earthquake hits, people don't wait for the sniffer dogs to be flown in from Norway. They go to their local church, they go to their local imam, they say, help me, and they will, right? So how do we, or their local NGOs, or, their lo or the local government, so we need, we need to support that local agency much more. There's another thing which is a bit more left field, which I think is really interesting, which is um, uh, something called positive deviance. This is the idea that you never get a situation where every individual, every community, every village, every family behaves exactly the same. And so positive deviance says, well, okay, look, so say you're looking at something like um, people's willingness to get their kids vaccinated. We will find out, you know, you'll find some families don't want to get their kids vaccinated, some do, and it'll be usually a kind of what we call a normal distribution where there's a big lump, a high bit in the middle, and then there's outliers that, yeah, bad and good, right? Positive deviance says, okay, and what we're going to do is do that, identify the positive outliers, and go and see why they're there. And you find that, you know, uh, a classic example, working on uh, female genital mutilation in Egypt, um, the campaigners weren't getting anywhere, the aid agencies weren't getting anywhere, and they went to these positive deviance people and said, oh, 97% of girls are still getting cut in Egypt. And the positive deviance people said, ah, oh, 3%. That's interesting. Who are they? And the campaigners never thought about it. So they identified why some families were not getting their girls cut and they built a whole campaign around that. The reason I love that is because it's respect for the system, respect for um, the system's ability to generate its own solutions, not always the white saviour thing of coming in with ideas from elsewhere, which often don't work uh, and it's just very colonial. So I think positive deviance has huge potential, but back to ideas, interests and institutions, it hasn't caught on. And I think one of the reasons it hasn't caught on is because it doesn't need a lot of money. So organizations that fundraise for projects, why would they do positive deviance, right? It doesn't matter of a job. So I think it's, it's, it's frustrating and I'm always on the lookout for converts to do more of the positive deviance work because where it's been done, it's sometimes been amazingly effective. Okay, my final question, which is the title of the episode as well. Can we change the world? Can we as individuals help change the world? Of course. History is the guide, you know. I mean, individuals can change the world. I think, um, you know, individuals with great ideas, individuals who who suffer, you know, like um, George Floyd. Yeah, there are these individuals, there are individual leaders, but even individual leaders like Mandela or Gandhi, um, they are part of a system. And one of their great skills as leaders, or Martin Luther King, was to understand how far you can go within a system, how far you can push the boundaries, what you have to do to bring people with you. So I would still argue that even as individuals, you need to 
dance with the system you need to build relationships and you need to build power with uh, in through organization and conversation duncan and Pfizer seem to agree that change happens as a collective rather than just one individual i asked jens what he thought as an optimist i think we can change the world to some degree i hope that we can like preempt climate change or catastrophe and like mitigate that that's where maybe a little bit more of a pessimist i i I worry about that a lot but like fundamentally i think there's a lot of things that we can do to change the world for the better um like be it via grassroots movements be it through citizen-led like engagement or be it via like these kind of like interventionist uh, like policies and regulatory systems but i think we can um and again for some questions like more local questions i think we have a lot of power for more global questions like it becomes more diffuse and harder to affect change on an individual level right again like i would love to introduce a lot of changes that makes the world a little bit less unequal uh, but like i probably don't have that power individually right nor does probably anyone it's more of a collective so emergent property but yeah i i remain on many issues an optimist and on some sadly a pessimist this episode was produced and edited by me mike wilkerson with help from Matt Monday, Sophie Mallet, and Sue Windybank. If you'd like to find out more about the research in the episode, please head to the show notes. If you enjoy Odyssey IQ, please leave us a review. Next month on IQ, we ask, how can we tackle loneliness?